Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. This is the Tom Hartman Program. And welcome back. Tom Hartman here with you. I'll be picking up your phone calls in just a wee little bit here. Happy Sean's birthday, whatever it may be for you. Yes, it's Taurus week, month, whatever. Two weeks, I guess, out of May, two weeks out of April. Happy birthday, Tom, tomorrow. Yeah, let's not go there. A lot to talk about today. And, of course, whatever you'd like to call about. It's just you and me. We're going to have a great time. I want to get into my rant today over at HartmanReport.com, titled, Is Democracy in the Workplace Having a Moment? And it's about what's going on with the union movement. We talked about this at some length, but this is you know, quite a topic. There is a lot in the news. I'll just give you a little information and then pick up your phone calls. So Louisiana wants to be the first state to officially send women to prison or perhaps even put them to death. They do have the death penalty in Louisiana for getting abortions. I'll tell you about that in a moment. Senate Republicans are making it plain that they are intending to propose, Joni Ernst talking about this, a federal ban on abortions so that no state can say, oh yeah, you can have an abortion here. No, no, gonna have to be, you're gonna have to go to Canada. And also free speech. Why is the Supreme Court getting a buffer zone when they denied them to abortion clinics in a 2014 decision? I'll tell you about that in just a moment. Also, the uh, Texas governor, Greg Abbott, is considering challenging a 1982 Supreme Court ruling. Why? <laughs> because let's change the subject from abortion, please. Let's talk about, you know, Mexicans or something. Also, in our geeky science, if meatless Mondays catch on, they could literally save our forests. They could stop deforestation. And the numbers are shocking. One less day of meat a week and a 50% reduction in deforestation. I'll tell you about that and give you all the details. And also, we have a crazy alert. Donald Trump suggested a secret missile strike on Mexico. Yes, when he was president. Yes, his Pentagon, the last Senate-confirmed Secretary of Defense, is telling all in a new book. I'll tell you about that. But... Just to start out, also a, a little bit of the news. We just got the economic numbers from the Department of Labor. The economy added 428,000 jobs in April. Uh, what was expected was 391,000. So the economy is rolling along, or at least employment is rolling along. Inflation, of course, is a problem, but um, the jobless rate has held steady at 3.6%. The job growth was widespread. The most rapidly growing industry was hospitality. Uh, leisure and hospitality, they gain 78,000 new jobs. Um, on the other hand, a uh, fascinating piece over at the Financial Times about there's a broad consensus across business leaders that, yes, a recession is coming. After all, a Democrat is up for, you know, Democrats are up for election in 2022, and a Democratic president is up for re-election, or at least there's going to be a presidential election in 2024, and you've got a Republican in charge of the Fed. It's time for a recession. And so they, they, the Financial Times called a whole bunch of CEOs and said, what do you think about this? Airbnbs, Brian Chesney says, more people are struggling with their rents and their mortgages, so they will turn to hosting, paying guests. So it's going to be good for Airbnb. Scott Miracle Grows CEO said, people keep buying paint and lawn care items. After all, they're unemployed, they can, or you know, whatever. Um, with, you know, when the recession comes, there will be a drop in employment. So they have more time to paint their house. Door-to-door uh, -door protein, protein shakes. The Herbalife chief, John DeSimone, says, based on the last 100 years of direct selling, it's very, been very counter-cyclical. 
In other words, when the economy goes south, when you get a recession and people lose their jobs, they start going door to door selling Herbalife. Uh, what about burglar alarms? ADT Chief uh, Financial Officer Jeff, Jeffrey Likasar says, uh, in, re in recessions, people tend to be more concerned about things like safety and security. Why? Well, because there's more people trying to break into their house because there's more unemployment and people are desperate. Dating websites, Match Group Chief Executive Sharmshita Adubi says, we've seen increased engagement during times of anxiety and trouble. So business is already looking forward to a recession. What are we going to do about that? All right, Louisiana, this is amazing. In response to the Supreme Court's uh, leaked draft opinion that it's time to, uh, it's time to criminalize abortion or try, trying to allow states to criminalize abortion, Louisiana wants to be the first. They want to be the first state to put a woman to death for getting an abortion. This is over at The Advertiser, a, uh, a newspaper in Louisiana. A, and, and just a straight read of it, a Louisiana Legislative Committee on Wednesday advanced a bill to make abortion the crime of homicide in which the mother, as well as those assisting her in terminating the pregnancy, can be charged with murder. It uh, passed the House Appropriations Committee on a 7-2 to two vote. Its sponsor, this is House Bill 813 in Louisiana, sponsor, Representative Danny McCormick, says that uh, we can't wait. We can't wait on the Supreme Court. And uh, the guy who actually helped author the bill is Reverend Brian Gunter of the First Baptist Church in Livingston, Louisiana. Yes, they actually hired a preacher. <laughs> Separation of church and state? No, not so much. They hired a preacher to write the bill. And he's, he's out going, yeah, let's put those women to death. Well, actually, his specific quote was, no compromises, no more waiting. Right. Meanwhile, in their commitment to killing people, the Republicans, uh, one of these Republican candidates, Andrew Wilhoyt, just uh, won a, uh, a spot Tuesday as one of three Republican candidates in the race for the seat of the Clinton Township Board. The 40-year-old Wilhoyt has been incarcerated in the Boone County Jail since last March when he murdered his wife and dropped her body over the side of a bridge. Indiana Election Division explained that under Indiana law, Republicans who are charged with murder are still allowed to run for, for any office in the state. His wife had just successfully undergone chemo treatment and had filed for a divorce when he killed her, or is alleged to have killed her. He has confessed, by the way. But he's still running for public office from jail. And at the federal level, now, Republicans are, you know, now you've got in Louisiana, let's put, let's put women to death for getting abortions. Now, at the federal level, Joni Ernst is saying, hey, that sounds like a good idea to us. And Mitch McConnell is not happy about it. Mitch McConnell came out and said to the Republican caucus, to all the Republican senators, stop talking about abortion. Three quarters of America wants abortion to remain legal. And this is not going to help us in the election and so his exact quote was, not a leaked draft, but the fact that the draft was leaked. In other words, don't talk about the draft, the, the draft uh, Supreme Court decision. Don't talk about that. Talk about the fact that it was leaked. It's interesting. Uh, yesterday afternoon, I was interviewed for a uh, podcast for Talkers Magazine about, uh, you know, which is the, the kind of the Bible of the talk radio industry, um, about this issue, about abortion. And uh, the fellow who interviewed me told me that uh, Michael Harrison, the publisher of the magazine, told me that the conservative that he had just published, he had just interviewed on the same issue, um, had basically put the centerpiece of his argument about, oh, my God, it's a leak. And I'm like, yeah, that's because the Republican study committee sent out a memo to all the Republicans saying, don't talk about abortion, talk about the leak. So anyhow, that, that's Mitch McConnell's message. But Joni Ernst is not on message. She's like, we need to discuss what the role of the federal government will be in this, she told NBC News yesterday. She's also a member of the Republican Party's leadership. She says uh, Senate Republicans are weighing whether Congress should enact abortion restrictions nationwide. We're debating it right now, Ernest said. Ernst said. Senator Ted Cruz was a little more decisive. He said, I have supported numerous federal bills. Senator Kevin Kramer of North Dakota 
He says, just my, just take my state of North Dakota, having a North Dakota child killed in the womb in Fargo versus Moorhead, Minnesota, you know, on the other side of the Red River. I don't find much solace in that just because it didn't happen in my state. In other words, he's the senator from North Dakota, but he doesn't want abortions to happen in Minnesota. So as a United States senator, he's all in on legislation that will say to Minnesota, you may be a blue state, you may think that abortion should remain legal. Tough luck. McConnell said, so Mitch McConnell again came out and said, you know, you people shouldn't be talking about this. And, and, and the way that he said this this time was he said, we are going to preserve the filibuster if we take the Senate after this election. In other words, it's going to take 60 votes to criminalize abortion nationwide, and the Democrats won't let that happen. So you guys, y'all can stop talking about it. He's getting kind of desperate here, you know. It's like, please stop talking about this. Joni Ernst, you know, put a sock on, you know, in your mouth. Come on, it's enough of this already. But Kevin Kramer and Joni Ernst and Ted Cruz, they are giddy. Oh, boy, we can put women in jail. They've been wanting to do that since the Salem witch trials were over. A couple of other things I just wanted to flag for you. Back on June 26th, 2014, so step into the Wayback Machine for a moment. This is eight years ago, June 26, 2014. Many abortion clinics had barriers around them. They were putting up cement and wire fences and things to keep the protesters off their lawns. And the Supreme Court on June 26, 2014 ruled that they couldn't do this anymore. Uh, and if the, and in fact, they, they said that the reason that they could no longer block protesters from their, from their streets and yards and things was because of the First Amendment. The advocates, this is, this is from a Politico argument, uh, article from uh, June 26, 2014. Quote, the court said the state law violated the First Amendment because its buffer zone limited speech too broadly, covering 35 feet from the doorway of facilities and including public areas like sidewalks. Uh, although other buffer zones typically are smaller, specifying distances such as 8 to 15 feet, the advocates said the court's decision puts them in jeopardy. Abortion opponents hailed the ruling as a victory in protecting free speech. Yes, you may not put up a fence around an abortion clinic. Here, the Commonwealth has pursued public safety interests by the extreme step of closing a substantial portion of a traditional public forum for all speakers. John Roberts wrote for the court. In other words, he's, he's talking about the Massachusetts law that allowed abortion clinics to put up a fence around themselves. And he says, this law is an extreme step and has closed down a substantial portion of a traditional public forum for all speakers. That traditional public forum was the yard and sidewalk in front of the abortion clinics. He said, allowing abortion clinics to block demonstrations in front of them is, quote, a burden substantially more speech than necessary to achieve the Commonwealth's asserted interests. The court's four conservatives said the law was unfairly aimed at anti-abortion speech because it restricted protesters but not clinic employees. So in other words, you can't put a fence around an abortion clinic that stops protesters, but the employees can go through. That doesn't make any sense. They go on to say the case was brought by abortion opponents who regularly try to do sidewalk counseling outside of Boston Clinic. They argued that the barriers that were allowed by the Massachusetts law restricted their speech against abortion. So for abortion clinics, the conservatives on the Supreme Court eight years ago said, you may not put up a fence. Well, guess what the Supreme Court just did? This from ABC News, Alexandra Hutzler. An imposing, unscalable, eight-foot-high fence has been erected at the U.S. Supreme Court in the wake of protests over a bombshell draft opinion on abortion. The protests outside the court's marble front steps have been largely peaceful, prompting some to question why a new security barrier is necessary. By the way, the Supreme Court is empty right now. The justices are not scheduled to meet there again in person until May 12th. But hey, these guys say if you're an abortion clinic, you may not put up a fence. We, the Supreme Court, have ruled. But we, the Supreme Court, when we say something that people don't like, we really don't want protesters in our front yard. 
It's absolutely amazing. You're going to see, in fact, I'm predicting over the next month or so, you are, in, in fact, all the way up until November, up, up till the election, you're going to see a few Republicans like Joni Ernst and Ted Cruz who are out there like, yeah, make abortion illegal, put women in jail. But the vast majority of them are going to be running in the other direction because they know how to read a poll as, as well as anybody else. And in fact, once the primary season is over, because these are Republicans talking to their primary voters saying, yeah, put these women to death. Primary voters are down with that. But in the general election, they got to find something else to talk about. And Greg Abbott down in Texas, the governor of Texas says, I know what I'm going to talk about. We're going to go back to a 1982 Supreme Court ruling that said that Texas has to educate all children in Texas because the 14th Amendment of the Constitution says all persons have equal protection under the law. doesn't say all citizens. So Texas has to educate kids who are in the state who aren't even citizens. And of course, that's true of the entire Constitution. The Constitution does not provide free speech or any of the other constitutional protections just for citizens. It's for persons. Everybody in the United States, whether a citizen or not, is protected by our Constitution. And the Supreme Court said that in 1982. But Greg Abbott thinks that this will get him some good press. He's going to go after the immigrant children. You know, it's like going after trans kids, right? They're not going to fight back. Immigrant kids are not going to fight back. They can't. So, of course, the bullies on the right want to go after them. You're listening to the Tom Hartman Program. You know, sometimes you think, how low will these guys go? They, they would never go that low, right? Pick on children? Of course they will. Quick math, the less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessible from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Now through April 15th, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. Just head over to netsuite.com Hartman with two N's. netsuite.com Hartman. That's netsuite.com Hartman. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. D.C. in Eva Beach, Hawaii. Hey, D.C., what's up? I was wondering about the three judges that Trump appointed. All right. All three of them committed perjury at the hearings. Yeah, at their and confirmation hearings. I'm thinking, shouldn't they resign or be forced out of the court by law? Because they're Supreme Court judges. And they committed perjury. Well, if they had any common decency, D.C., they would, but they don't. <laughs> it's just, they're well, Republicans. I know, but can't somebody else, can't Biden, can't senators or congressmen do anything about that? No, not really. The only way that you can hold a Supreme Court justice accountable, I suppose you could try to prosecute them for perjury, but that would require the Justice Department, and Merrick Garland's not going to do that. Joe Biden's not going to do that. They're not going to go after another branch of government. So the only way that you can hold them responsible really is by impeachment. And an impeachment would have to start in the House of Representatives. There's not the stomach for that there. And then it would have to get two-thirds of the votes in the Senate, which is definitely not going to happen. So, you know, it's just everybody considers it a futile effort. 
I think, though, that the larger issue, D.C., is that what this has done is revealed how craven these people are on the Supreme Court and how, right. how lacking in ethics and morality they are. And I think it's doing some serious damage to the reputation of the court. D.C., thanks for the call. Jessica in Chicago. Hey, Jessica, thanks for watching us on Free Speech. What's up? Hi, Tom. Happy birthday to you and Sean. You're brilliant all the time. Thank you. And one reason I called, no wonder these Republicans want history and books destroyed. Because the Republicans have always been cruel, vicious, hateful in their past. Not only did the Republicans attempt in 1933 the insurrection against Roosevelt, the Republicans were terrorists in the 60s, too. Republicans had a group called the Minko Mob. On November 4, 1960, Vice President candidate LBJ and his wife went to Dallas days before the election. When they got there at their hotel, they were mobbed by a hundred angry, violent white Republican women wearing red hats. Hmm. And, and mink coats, presumably. <laughs> yes, they were. And LBJ and his wife were physically pushed by them. The women grabbed Lady Bird's gloves and took them away from her, and they all took out their hat pins and stabbed them with it. You're kidding. No, I saw this on the History Channel, and I saw it, and and they were wearing their little mink coats, too. I had no idea. They're so disgusting. They've only gotten worse. These Republicans have just only gotten worse. Yeah. Well, that's, you know, the authoritarian mindset predisposes you to violence, so it shouldn't surprise us. I never heard of the mink coat mob, though. Thanks a lot for that, Jessica. Pick up your calls in just a second. I just wanted to share a, a geeky science with you. This is absolutely fascinating. This I got this from Nature Briefing, you know, Nature Magazine, the the the... the very prestigious science magazine. I subscribe to it. And, and I just got this in the mail this morning. Meat Free Monday, which is a thing. You know, there's this Meat Free Monday. I remember when it was Meat Free Friday. <laughs> when I was in school, it was always fish on Fridays, right? I, I think that was the, the Catholic influence, which was a good, good thing back then. And, uh, but the, the Meat Free Monday is going viral all around the world. And they did the math on this, and they found that if uh, just one-fifth of global beef consumption was replaced with a meat substitute, whether it's, you know, Beyond Burger or just, you know, more vegetables, if one-fifth of global beef beef consumption uh, was done away with, and they estimate it would take 30 years to really do it, but uh, it would cut in half the amount of deforestation that's going on around the world. If we replaced 80% of our beef with beef alternatives, it would eliminate 90% of worldwide forest loss. Beef is really and truly just the, the deadliest thing out there. I mean, in addition to causing heart attacks and strokes, uh, you know, it's poisoning the environment. The other story I wanted to share with you real quickly, and then I'll pick up your phone calls, is unbleeping believable is the headline. Bob Brigham writing over at rawstory.com. Experts weigh in on the shocking Trump revelations to Mark Esper. Mark Esper was the last Senate-confirmed Secretary of Defense that Donald Trump had. And he just published a book, and in this book, he just reveals how insane Donald Trump was. That he wanted, he was, he desperately wanted the American military to shoot Black Lives Matter protesters in the legs. And when they refused to do it, when Mark Esper refused to go along with this, not only did Trump scream at him obscenities, but he also dragged Mike Pence in and screamed obscenities at him. Then he goes to, to Esper and says, you know, why don't we, why don't we send uh, uh, missiles down to Mexico and take out the drug traffickers with missiles? Yeah, it turns out that this is actually, this was actually the scheme of a movie, the Tom Clancy movie, Clear and Present Danger. The, 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 it was basically the plot. This is from 1989. And it was, a, actually the novel was 1989. It was adopted into a 1994 movie starring Harrison Ford. 
where you know the drug traffickers were had just kind of seized control of Mexico. So the American president said, "Oh yeah, we're going to nuke those guys." It's nuts, right? I don't know how to say it beyond that. Re retired three-star General Mark Hurtling. Uh, said, launching Patriot missiles against a ground target and thinking no one will know? Stable genius material. Because, uh, you know, when, when Trump said, well, why don't we just send some missiles into Mexico, his defense secretary said, that's a, you know, that's a crime. You can't, that's, that's a declaration of war against Mexico. You can't do that. And Trump said, well, we'll do it in a way that nobody will know. And so, three-star general Hurt Hurtling comes out and goes, yeah, right, stable genius. And this is the guy that the Republican Party wants to put back in the White House. That's, that's where it, it just suddenly gets sober. Donald Trump, by the way, to this day, has refused, ref completely refused, to condemn Vladimir Putin for what he's doing in Ukraine. I don't think that fact gets anywhere near enough coverage in our media. Donald Trump refuses to condemn Putin for the rapes in Ukraine, for the murders in Ukraine, for the tortures in Ukraine, people having limbs cut off while they're awake and conscious as a form of torture to try to try to get information out. Of, the, 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 Donald Trump will not condemn Vladimir Putin for any of this. He was Putin's agent in the White House. He still is Putin's agent. And the Republicans still want this guy to be president. It's insane. Okay, let's pick up your phone calls here. Jackie in Port Orchard, Washington. Hey, Jackie, thanks for listening to KBCS. What's up? Hi, Tom. You know, we've either met or we're very near a million deaths in yeah. the United States due to COVID. Yeah, I do. So I just believe it should go out on blast that, it, you know, it was either 2017 or 2018 that Trump and his Republican administration is the one that disbanded the National Security Council that focused on pandemics and 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 they, and he also proposed the uh, CDC cuts yep. because he did not perceive the threat of pandemics in the same way that experts in the field did. Well, after I mean, just to, to flesh this out a little, Jackie, after the Ebola thing, uh, where Republicans were talking about impeaching uh, impeaching Obama because he let uh, you know a doctor who'd been exposed to Ebola or had Ebola, I guess come back to the United States and a nurse who'd been exposed. Remember all that scandal and Chris Christie and all that stuff. After that, the Obama administration put together uh, a couple of things. Number one, they created an office of, uh, I, I forget the name of it, but basically an office of pandemics within the Department of Homeland Security. Then they did the same thing within the National Security Council, which operates out of the White House. So there were two different agencies that were created to deal with pandemics. And then they published a what they literally called the pandemic handbook about how the federal government should respond in the event there was a, a pandemic. When Trump came into office, he he got rid of the of the handbook, the pandemic handbook, literally just, you know, had copies shredded, get rid of that, get it out of here. And he closed down both those offices. So when the pandemic hit in 2020, we were utterly unprepared, which is in, in, I, I'm guessing to your point why we have a million dead people in the United States. We have the highest rate of death in the entire developed world and the second or third highest rate of death in the entire, on the entire planet. <laughs> it's insane. It's insane. I'm with you, Jackie. We need to, we need to you know, let people know about this. Thank you very much for the call. Tony in Watsonville, California. Hey, Tony, what's on your mind today? Hey, salutations, Mr. Hartman. Thank you. Yeah, um, I got a question about abortions. Since corporations are considered people, when would abortion of a corporation, would that be illegal? Oh, that's a and good what question. about foreign um, corporations? If you close down a division of your corporation, is that considered an abortion? <laughs> yes. <laughs> Since they're people. The, this Supreme Court's logic that. is just so, I mean, that was the basis of their 2010 Citizens United decision is that corporations are persons. And uh, yeah, and now they want to they want to yeah. give fetuses personhood as well, but but not so much for regular people. Tony, thank you very much. Catherine in, a, in Atascadero, California. Hey, Catherine, what's on your mind today? Hi, Tom. I wanted to mention uh, Amy Kobachar's name and also Pete Buttigieg. However, the reason I called was about this abortion again. What is to prevent these? 
crazy bullies from going backwards in time to these clinics and getting their records and charging those women and those doctors and those that personnel charging them with the crimes they want to charge women for for having an abortion they could do that you know they could do anything they want well they can't actually do that catherine that's i think the phrase is ex post facto i believe it's in the constitution okay, i've heard that i've heard that before yeah, and, and the, you know congress shall pass no ex post facto laws in other words you can't retroactively criminalize something so something is legal up All until right. the point at which you make it illegal and then once you make it illegal it's only illegal going forward beyond that so uh, but but the, the larger issue i think that you raise is that you know when these guys get on their high horses and they're convinced that they are carrying out a moral crusade and and all this kind of stuff any abortion clinic who has any of their electronic records that are in any way reachable via the, via the internet should you know double down on their security on that because uh, I, I I think we're yeah. going to see something uh, resembling open warfare breaking out here, or at least uh, verbal open warfare, as this wow. debate heats up and as we get closer and closer to the election. Catherine, thank you for the call. John in uh, Vancouver, Washington. Hey, John, what's up? Hey, I got your coming to America answer. You know, they have the Big Mac and we've got the Big Mac. Hey, they're MAGA. Let's be MALA. Make America lead again. Yeah, except the mala is, the, you know, the root word means bad, doesn't it, in Latin? Or the malo, also in Spanish? Well, I don't know. But, um, <laughs> but, but, keep thinking, time, John. I've got, I got some more here. Every time they scream freedom, the lips need to own the word liberty. That's a nice one. Yeah. Liberty from hospital bills. Liberty from sure. corporate masters. Sure. You know, and we have already have a great way to get commercials done. All we need to do is get the rights to undercover boss to show what liberation looks like. Because at the end of every show, the boss pays off medical bills or he pays off their students. I've loans, never, I've never seen the show, John. Fun. Oh, you ought to check it out because that happens at the end of every episode. Yeah, but it sounds to me like a show that's that's essentially deifying bosses. Well, in a way, but yeah, I get it. Keep thinking, John. You got some great ideas there, and and uh, you know I have a feeling there's more where those came from. So it's great to hear from you, and thank you very much. As a professional welder, Shayna Ford uses Forge FX to practice over and over, which helps her improve her skills. The more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Our book today in the Tom Hartman Book Club is The Great Experiment, Why Diverse Democracies Fall Apart and How They Can Endure by Yasha Monk. This is from the introduction. A moment before the show went live, I realized how nervous I was. German is my mother tongue, but after going to college in Britain and grad school in America, I'm now more comfortable talking about politics in English. So when I sat down for a live interview at Tagesmann, one of the most popular news programs in Germany, I was afraid that I might make a fool of myself by sounding incoherent or say, saying something I didn't really mean. When the host set me up to talk about one of the main arguments of this book, what, she asked, are the causes for the recent rise of authoritarian populism, I started to find my groove. Little by little, my nerves steadied. There's widespread anger at economic stagnation, I said. There's the rise of social media, which makes it easier for demagogues to reach a big audience by spreading lies and inciting hatred. And then there is a third reason, one that is particularly pertinent in a country still struggling with the recent arrival of a million refugees from Africa and the Middle East. 
We are, I told the host, embarking on an historically unique experiment, that of turning a monoethic, monocultural democracy into a multi-ethnic one. That can work. I think it will work. But of course, it also causes all kinds of disruptions. After the interview, a wave of relief washed over me. My German had sounded mostly natural. I'd managed to get across some of the core arguments in my book. Most important, I had not done anything crazy or embarrassing. The worst outcome of any live interview, and you, that you inadvertently go viral, had not, I thought, materialized. I headed to the radio station with a big smile. With not a minute to spare, I caught a train to Frankfurt, checked into an airport hotel, and fell into a deep sleep. Only when I switched on my phone the next evening, after a 10-hour flight back to the United States, did I realize that the interview had gone viral after all. My inbox was overflowing with angry messages. Stop telling us how to live, one said. How dare you experiment on us, another asked. Thanks for admitting to your vile conspiracy, a third read. I was taken aback by how vitriolic these messages were, but I was even more baffled by their content. To what conspiracy had I admitted? Who was I supposedly experimenting on? A search of the internet quickly supplied the answer. A few minutes after my interview, Tixi's Einblick, a far-right website, had posted an article implying that Angela Merkel and I were deliberately experimenting on the German people. Who agreed to this experiment, its author demanded to know. From this short post, the rage at my supposed admission had spread with astonishing speed. Far-right radio hosts, YouTubers, even elected politicians were citing the interview as proof that nefarious forces were undertaking a great replacement designed to annihilate Europe's native population. Finally, the word reached the Daily Stormer, the American neo-Nazi website. Putting my name in triple brackets to indicate that I am Jewish, the headline warned readers that Yasha Monk's unique historical experiment involving Arbeit Mach Frei, the perfidious inscription on the gate of the Auschwitz extermination camp, the, the article was tagged, Diversity Mach Frei, the Hebrew people are at it again. In one sense, my 15 minutes of fame among the far right and the five minutes of hate they elicited are based on a straightforward misunderstanding. To state the obvious, Angela Merkel and I are not in cahoots to run some grand experiment on the German people. Nobody is. The rapid change in the ethnic and religious composition of countries from Germany to Sweden, from Australia to the United States, does not stem from the deliberate preferences of some secret cabal. It is the often unintended consequence of a series of choices that politicians have made for a variety of economic, political, and humanitarian reasons. And yet, I do not regret using the word experiment, for I still believe that, understood in the right way, this word best describes the situation in, most develop, in which most developed democracies around the world now find themselves. In one sense, an experiment is carried out by scientists who consciously set parameters before they begin. According to the Oxford English Dictionary, it is a scientific procedure undertaken to make a discovery, test a hypothesis, or demonstrate a known fact. This is how my critics interpreted the claim that many countries have now embarked on an unique historical experiment. In their mind, where there is an experiment, there must be an experimenter, preferably a Jew with an unplaceable accent and an affiliation with elite institutions like Harvard University. But in another sense, an experiment can simply consist of trying to make some important endeavor succeed in unaccustomed or unforeseen circumstances. It is, in the words of the same dictionary entry, a course of action tentatively adopted without being sure of the outcome. This, of course, is what I had in mind. In the 18th century, the founding fathers of the United States embarked on a great experiment in modern democracy when they set up a self-governing republic at a time when similar undertakings had failed miserably in every country where they had been tried. Though they could not be sure of the outcome, they recognized that a long train of abuses left them with no other choice if they were to be true to their ideals. Today, we are embarking on a similarly novel endeavor. The book by Yasha Monk, The Great Experiment, Why Diverse Democracies Fall Apart and How They Can Endure. The Great Experiment. The title of my piece today over at HartmanReport.com is, Is Democracy in the Workplace Having a Moment? And a democracy in the workplace, of course, is a union. 
Uh, you will recall yesterday or the day before we had a, uh, it was yesterday, wasn't it? We had a couple of people from Starbucks, the Starbucks Union. Oh, it was the day before. Thank you. Uh, you know, on the program talking about, you know, what they're doing and all this kind of stuff and how cool it is that people will come in and, you know, when they say, what's your name? People will say, my name is Union Strong. And so it gets, you know, plugged into the system. And so when the, when your coffee comes up, they yell, Union Strong. And well, Starbucks has sent out a memo to all their stores saying, don't do that anymore. Don't say union out loud. Right. They're apparently not happy with this. Uh, so and in fact, the tweet uh, of the memo is is attached to my my article today at HartmanReport.com. Here's a company whose founder is worth over three billion dollars. Most likely the vast majority of that money came from Starbucks, which means that it could have gone to his employees instead. But it went to Howard Schultz. Uh, he's not unique in this regard, you know, and, and now the employees, whether it's Starbucks or Apple or Amazon, they're saying, hey, wait a minute, we should have a right to unionize and we should have a piece of this, of this pie. And, you know, this is, this is a pretty simple principle. Democracy is a good thing. Democracy at the level of government is a good thing because it, it produces you know, a more egalitarian world. It, uh, it tends to lessen inequality. It lifts people's control over their own life situations. It protects communities from predation by the rich and powerful. It meets the needs of individuals and families. That's democracy in general. It provides for a stable, healthy, happy society. Democracy in the workplace does much the same. Democracy in the workplace is what you call a union. A union is a democratic institution, just like a, a, a government is a democratic institution. A union is a government. It's a nonprofit governmental ins or a democratic institution, small d, democratic institution in the workplace. And people with a union are more likely to have high levels of job satisfaction, demonstrate better job performance, be more productive earn higher wages and benefits, make the company more money, experience fewer sick days, offer suggestions to help improve the company and its products. They're more likely to stay with their employer longer, lower turnover. Now, they're more likely to champion the employer's reputation in the community. And they're more likely to respect their fellow workers, particularly in highly diverse workplaces when there is a union. These are all good reasons to have unions. And so why don't we have unions? Well. I think the answer is very simple, one word, greed. Bernie Sanders recently tweeted, if Jeff Bezos can afford a $500 million yacht, a $177 million Beverly Hills estate, a $78 million Maui estate, a $23 million DC mansion with 25 bathrooms and a rocket ship, you know what? He can afford to recognize the American Labor Union and negotiate a first, excuse me, the Amazon Labor Union and negotiate a first fair contract or a fair first contract. This goes back to the 30s, you know, when, when unions were legalized, and it was a big deal. And I, I tell the story, I, and I've told this before, so my apologies to those of you who have been longtime listeners, but I think it's probably been a year or two since I've talked about it. One of my earliest memories is from when I was around four or five years old, and we lived in this little house on Cleveland Street in Lansing, Michigan. And the house, I think, was a converted garage. I mean, it was that small. It was a one-bedroom house. And it was my mom, my dad, myself, and my younger brother, Steve. And mom was pregnant with our third, her, uh, my brother, Stan, who was the, my brother who just passed away uh, earlier uh, this year, or last year. And, uh, and, and, and John, the youngest, was yet to come. And, you know, we were living in this little one-bedroom house. And every weekend, we, mom, my mom would say, let's go to Sally's which was her name for Salvation Army. We'd go to the Salvation Army stores and we'd got clothes, we got furniture, we'd get plates and stuff. We, I mean, you know, and mostly, I mean, for mom and dad, it was looking for books because they were big time book collectors. And you know, when your books are only five cents each, you know, you can get a lot of books. My dad was making a living. He had two jobs. Uh, he was a door-to-door -door salesman. This was 1957 or 1956. And he was going door to door selling Rexair vacuum cleaners and World Book encyclopedias. Which was kind of cool for me because I had a set of World Book encyclopedias and I set out when I was seven or eight years old to read the whole thing from beginning to end. 
which I never accomplished. I'll tell you right up front, but I love those encyclopedias. We didn't even have a television. And then dad, and we used to go to the cheese store, what I called the cheese store, uh, which was the surplus food distribution center in Lansing. Uh, where, you know, every week we could get uh, 20 pounds of, uh, of white macaroni and 10 pounds of non, uh, dried, dried non-fat milk and uh, powdered milk and, and uh, you know, a brick of American cheese. And I still hate powdered milk and I still have a love-hate relationship with mac and cheese. But then in 1957, my dad got a union job at a, a local tool and die shop, Lancy Tool and Jai. And within a year, we had bought a brand new three-bedroom house with a basement out in the suburbs of South Lansing. It's uh, where my brothers Stan and John were born. Um, Dad had got a brand new car that didn't have holes in the floorboard. Every year, we took a vacation driving all around the country. We bought our first TV that year, 1957, along with a living room full of furniture, sitting in and watching. In other words, what happened was when my dad got a union job when I was five years old, my family went from living in poverty to being in the middle class. And our experience was not unique in that regard. This was happening all over America, to the point that two-thirds of Americans were living in the middle class by 1980 when Ronald Reagan came into office. Today it's about 44%. We have lost about 20% of the middle class to Reaganism, to 40 years of Reaganism. And the main way that Reagan has destroyed the American middle class, well, there, there, were, there were two big things. One was destroying the unions. Reagan was the first president in the history of the United States to put an anti-labor lawyer in charge of the Labor Department, Ray Donovan. And, you know, they, they began dismantling unions. It was one of the first things Reagan did as president was go after PATCO, one of only two unions that had endorsed him. That didn't matter. He, you know, he was a Republican. Loyalty isn't a, isn't a thing for Republicans. And uh, so he took down the Professional Air Traffic Controllers Association. Um, he was the first president since 1921 to drop the top tax rate on the morbidly rich from over, well, at that time it was 74%. He dropped it all the way down to 25% for one year and then up to 28%. Today, the morbidly rich on average pay less than 3%. And as a result of this, now here we are 41 years later, after Reagan, 18,000 families, the top one one hundredth of one percent of Americans own more wealth than the entire middle class. And three men today hold more wealth than the bottom half of all Americans. Let that sink in for a moment. How did that happen? Well, our democracy has been gutted, and in large part, by the Supreme Court going after union rights. And because and the Supreme Court has done as much to destroy unions as have, uh, go to tomhartman.com slash labor.pdf, you'll see the article about it, or the, the chapter from my book, The Hidden History of the Supreme Court, on this very topic. So. What do we do? Well, frankly, I think we need we need unions again. We really need unions again. And so I, you know, I'll, I will continue to highlight the people at Starbucks and Amazon. Joe Biden met in the White House either yesterday or the day before with organizers from Starbucks and from Amazon. This is cool stuff to have a Democrat in the White House. Isn't that great? Bring back the American middle class. We're working on it. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Speaking the truth to multinational corporations and the union busters would really rather you didn't know all about. I'll be right back. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills. There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. And welcome back, Rich in Eugene, Oregon. Hey, Rich, thanks for watching us on Facebook Live. What's on your mind today? Hello, Tom. 
Uh, first, I want you to know that Greg Clapper says, also says hello. Oh, great. <laughs> like why, dumb, why am I, I, where am I remembering Greg Clapper from? Uh, apparently, he worked with, you guys worked together in radio in Portland. Oh, uh, yeah. Okay. Yes. Like Thank you. Okay. You bet. Well, like you, Tom, I've been a progressive for a long, long time, remaining totally committed to two priorities, one political, one personal, getting corporate control off our backs, and especially now ending the deep divisions that keep us at each other instead of with each other. On the political side, let me suggest how we can shift power from the money elites, as Roosevelt called them, to us. And I promise, Tom, it will be quick, believe it or not. Given the political reality that our current defensive strategy of resistance is not getting us to a progressive future, what's obviously needed is progressive power that can actually compete with corporate power. And the way to acquire it is with a national multiracial electoral organization. Uh, We have one. It's called the Democratic Party. Um, It's got a billion-dollar budget. It's got, you know, hundreds of thousands of people involved with it. It's got thousands of employees and and, and tens of thousands of volunteers. Run by and for corporate interests. And uh, uh, this organization I'm talking about would, for the first time, be led by a united central progressive command with regional coordinators, north, south, east, and west, Mm -hmm. that are planning and facilitating and providing resources to our candidates around the country. What in most general terms, that in most general terms is what to do. We have to build the organization if we take ourselves seriously as progressives. The thing is, how do we do it? How do we get it off the ground and make it real? And we do it by starting with very doable progressive unity summits in each state that are linked together under a national umbrella that allow us to finally apply our collective power. And this new national alliance, directed by a unified progressive headquarters and launched in each state, is how we finally compete and succeed against corporate rule. If someone has a better idea, let's hear it. As Bernie has said, the only way to beat organized money is with organized people. And that's what this recommended offensive electoral strategy is about. And by the way, Tom, this can be a significant revenue source for free speech TV by helping to facilitate a new and unique nationwide progressive alliance. Okay. In a, Rich, in every time call, I've seen anybody do this or try to do this, and I remember these debates from, from SDS from the 60s, for God's sake. I mean, this goes way, way back. Um, you, you end up with factions. You end up with people fighting over what's going to be what. You know, who's going to, how are we going to fund it? Where's the money? Oh, this guy is too far off to the left. That one's not far enough. Uh, that's, that's why I, you know, I mean, you've got this whole spectrum already in the Democratic Party. Why not just try to take over the Democratic Party, um, uh, you know, get more progressives inside the Democratic Party rather than start a new organization from the ground up? It has never worked. I've, I've seen at least three different serious tries at this. Well, I'm totally with you on progressives taking over the Democratic Party, but in the way Bernie approached it, running as a registered... He started an organization. It's called Our Revolution. It's still out there. I know it's out there, and it needs to be more out there. And but, but see, we, have to, we have to advocate for a progressive future, yes, but we have to win at every level, particularly in the House and the Senate, and we need to do it with progressive majorities in all of it. Okay. And well, Rich, good luck on this, and when you've got your organization together, let me know. I'd love to. I'd love to know about it. Rex in Tacoma. Hey, Rex, uh, Tacoma, Washington. Hey, Rex, what's up? Good morning, Tom. The question that Ted Kennedy asked: When is uh, the rich have enough? Yeah. When does the greed I, stop? I, yeah, it doesn't, and uh, they keep moving the goalposts. That's what's causing inflation. Every time they give a raise to a worker, they raise the price of their product and which increases their income there has to come a point where they they give raises to the workers and and then accept that they have to make a little bit less but that'll never happen well it'll never happen as long as the top tax rate is is at 28 percent there's so many loopholes that your average billionaire is paying less than three percent yes yeah so they It'll also never happen as long as you can compensate executives with stock. That's another thing that Reagan legalized that never should have happened. Yeah, so it, so it enables them to keep moving the goalposts. Every time we get a raise, the workers, 
then they raise the price of uh, products, and it's a never-ending cycle. Right. I just wanted to point that out. <laughs> I agree. I agree. Rex, uh, excellent pointing. Thank you very much. Alejandro in Miami. Hey, Alejandro, what's on your mind today? No, hey, Tom, I just wanted to throw out a theory with regards to the leak of the, you know, the overturning Roe versus Wade decision. I think, obviously, I think it's obviously a bad idea to overturn Roe versus Wade, you know, because mm -hmm. it obviously affects all women, especially Republican mistresses. I mean, that's going to be very inconvenient if it's, they can't get an abortion. So well, the Republican mistresses will still be able to hop on a private jet to Switzerland. They won't have a problem or, you know. <laughs> okay. Well, I'm glad there's some for that. <laughs> They're not worried. I'm serious. They're, you know, Republicans are mostly wealthy white men and they and, and, and women and, and, you know, wealthy people in the United States will not be inconvenienced, even if even if Louisiana makes it a, a crime punishable by murder. Republican, you know, wealthy people will not be inconvenienced. They'll, like I said, they'll just hop on a plane and go someplace else. Well, I also want to talk about the Louisiana law, but I guess, Mike, let me throw out this theory about the Supreme Court leak that maybe, you know, that was done on purpose, Supreme Court leak by the court to test the waters to see how people were going to get pissed. And if they got really pissed, as predicted, they're going to be like, okay, let's dial it back, Alito. Let's just go with just a minor editing, a minor trimming of abortion rights. Let's not go full-blown crazy and overturning Roe versus Wade, because that's just, just a stupid idea. Yeah, or so let's take Matthew Hale out of this thing. And <laughs> you know, the guy who is executing women as witches. Let's no yeah. longer quote him. Oh, God, I don't know. Yeah, I know. It's, just, it's so stupid. I mean, the whole overturning Roe versus Wade is just a bad idea. Just, you know, you it, if you look at the footnotes in this decision, uh, Alito quotes himself six times, uh, you know, in, in all the legal scholars he's quoting. He quotes women only five times. But women I didn't scholars. know that. That's, yeah. The yeah, vast majority of them are men. All the, all the scholars he quotes. Anyhow, back to you, Alejandro. We have, got, we have about 30 seconds. Yeah, no, no, and I also want to say that the Louis, a problematic, a big problem, you know, this reminds me of criminal law with the Louisiana proposal to, you know, make it a murder to do an abortion. The problem is that murder under the common law is a killing of another, of a human being against another human being, but that's legally, uh, throughout common law, you were not considered a human being until you came out of the womb and you were born. Right. So how are they going to redefine murder to include that? That's a very vague and, uh, well, I think they'll, 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 they'll write that right into the statute, the definition of, of when human life begins. Yeah, I just think it's just a stupid idea. It's just going to turn into a philosophical oh. debate in court of when does life begin, oh, yeah. and no judge wants to deal with that. Yeah, it's going to get very messy. Alejandro, thank you. John in Rockland, Massachusetts. Hey, John, what's on your mind today? Hey, Tom. Um, I've never called before. I'm, I'm an old guy. Uh, I'm about the same age as, as Biden. I've been a, a liberal Democrat all my life, and I have a question for you. Who do you think is the most universally admired and loved American? I think in the past of people like Amelia Earhart and Lindbergh and Babe Ruth and Mickey Mantle, can you think of anyone today who is, as I say, universally admired and loved by most Americans, because I think that Biden, if he runs for re-election, I, I don't think he has a chance. I think he's, if, if he feels the same way I feel at my age, uh, he should not be president. And I just wonder uh, who you see on the horizon who might take over the reins of the Democratic Party. Yeah. I mean, there's this I don't know if it's mythology or if it's an actual, an actual accurate theory that had Ted Kennedy not challenged Jimmy Carter in 1980 in the primary um, and, and pointed out that Jimmy Carter was starting to embrace neoliberalism and all this other stuff, um, that Carter probably could have beaten uh, Ronnie, Ronnie Reagan. Uh, you know, uh, right. I, you, know you, can, you can flip a coin on that one. But I, I, my sense of it is that um, Kamala Harris has not caught fire. Um, no, she's, no. I, I think she's, uh, she's a good person. She's a good politician. She's making a great vice president and she's got two years to grow into the job and, and, and raise her profile substantially. And, and she's going to have to do I, that. I, I don't think that's going to work. I think she's already damaged goods, frankly. Well, we'll see. But we'll see. But I, and I, and I agree with you about Joe Biden being too old basically is the bottom line. 
Um, you know, my personal preference would be Elizabeth Warren. Um, I, you know, I think it is time for a woman to be president. Um, I, you know, there are, but there are a number of good candidates and, and uh, you know, John, you've kind of opened a, a topic here. Even the discussion kind of presupposes that it won't be either Harris or Biden, which offends a lot of Democrats. But John, you know, I've had one thought over the years. And again, it goes back to the, to the Ronald Reagan example. I think Tom Hanks would be a terrific candidate. Yeah, but again, you know, whenever you pick a celebrity, um, then you start digging into their lives and you discover that, you know, they're not vettable or they've got all kinds of, you know, b b skeletons in their closet or whatever. So, John, I, 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 I totally understand what your, you know, your perspective and what you're trying to figure out here. I don't think there's an easy answer right now. And let's let political evolution take its course. Susan in Caldwell, Idaho. Hey, Susan, what's on your mind today? I was intrigued by the mink coke mob story that the lady called in, so yeah, I looked too. it up. Uh -huh. The American Prospect quotes a fascinating book called Dallas 1963, which recounts this incident, which happened two days before the 1960 election. Kennedy was in Chicago trying to nail down Illinois, and we saw LBG down there in Dallas trying to get Texas. Right. This outfit was fomented by one of the Republican representatives. And they did mob them. They hit Ladybird with signs. Anyway, this was all caught, or most of it was caught by NBC News, and it was flashed coast to coast, and the Democrats were all over it. Huh. This incident, according to Nixon, lost him Texas because even though Nixon carried Dallas and those Republicans, the rest of the state went for LBJ and Kennedy. Oh, that's It's fascinating. You should look it up. That's interesting. I didn't realize that yeah, this was one of the he things that flipped it. Yeah. Yeah, look at this book, Dallas 1963. It's quoted in the American Prospect online, and it's fascinating, and it was all caught on TV. Wow, I'll check it out. Susan, thank you. Thank you for that. And thank you for all of you who have, everybody who's called, everybody. Thank you for being with us today. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com.